Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Shane Trotter. Shane is the author of Setting the Bar, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Era of Distraction, Dependency, and Entitlement. As a writer for the likes of Breaking Muscle, an educator, and a high school strength and conditioning coordinator, Shane has been challenging youth development norms for over a decade. He believes that too much emphasis on comfort and a lost sense of community standards has left people feeling purposeless, disconnected, and trapped in self-limiting patterns. Through his writing and role in education, he aims to reverse this and set a higher standard for our kids and ourselves. Thanks so much for joining us today, Shane. Uh, Phil and I are super excited to talk to uh, a warrior poet. So tell us a little bit about what that is and a little bit about your origin story, how you got to this point. Uh, and then there's so many great topics that we're going to dive in today. But yeah, where would you like to start with that? Well, wonderful. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Uh, and yeah, so a, a warrior poet immediately uh, puts to mind the, the movie Braveheart uh, and, uh, and, and my, my father. Uh, my father was a, uh, so I, I think to understand me and the way, you know, I, I'm a weirdo in every sphere I run in, a strength and conditioning coach who's nerdier than every strength and conditioning coach, a teacher who is kind of an educational romantic. I think, you know, I, I, I take more of a professor approach to, to teaching often. Um, so my father was a PhD philosophy professor, an emergency room doctor, a uh, black belt uh, he was on the cover of Black Belt magazine at one point. So that was kind of the weird atmosphere I grew up in. Um, he was he, he was a very passionate man. You were raised with, a, you know, kind of not worshiping, but really loving heroes, talking about heroes. Um, so I, I grew to love history at a, at a young age. And um, and so that was very very much in my DNA uh, and, and has shaped the way uh, my, my adult career. Um, so I, I got into education and uh, was uh, quickly frustrated by what, what I perceived as being too low of standards. And, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, been taken with the kind of the Theodore Roosevelt approach, I guess, since then is just, you know, um, attack, attack things head on and, and uh, try to try to create the impact you think you think needs to uh, happen in the world. 
Oh, I love that. And I also like the uh, the kind of crossover between the physical and the cerebral, right? Like there's almost that kind of Platonic or Greek Greek philosopher ideal of the warrior poet where, you know, we could quote um, anybody or even some of the Roman philosophers there about the need to to shape both body and mind. Um, you mentioned some of those historical figures that your dad kind of got you into studying and geeking out with him on. Who were some of those other than Teddy that you just mentioned? Yeah, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was was my chief hero. Uh, I, I often point to, uh, to uh, obviously, uh, Jim McCain in the book as, as well. Uh, it's a big fan of. Um, Gandhi, uh, believe it or not, uh, was one we talked about a lot. He was, he, you know, his his philosophy was 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 very masculine, very strong. Um, and, you know, my 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 father being a uh, a, a religion uh, undergrad and and a philosopher, so that that kind of came up as well. But uh, the big one is is Pat Tillman is is who I often think of. I love the story of Pat Tillman. Uh, you know, Pat Tillman is a guy who had had a had everything in the world. He, uh, you know, he's, he's making millions of dollars playing safety for the Arizona Cardinals. September 11th happens, and he he's called uh, something calls him a, a sense of duty, uh, you know, a a, a commitment to uh, virtue. Something in deep inside him, uh, seeds were sown, and he felt like he had to, uh, to to leave it all behind and go go fight this war. And what I find it really inspiring about that is. He gets there and he learns that uh, that the war isn't what he thought it would be. Uh, so and then he has to find a purpose, a reason to stay, and it's to fight for the brothers next to him. So I I, um, I, I really like complex characters. Um, you know, Pat Tillman, Theodore Roosevelt being being great examples of that. I definitely I love that. Yeah, with Teddy, it's it kind of makes me think. I don't know if you've ever talked to the folks at Art of Manliness, but you know, Brett McKay and his wife and the rest of that team and. Uh, Actually, his his former producer lives here in town, and we, we were meant to get together, and then I got sick, you know, in November, as you both know, and so uh, that's been postponed. But yeah, just that crew seems to ha- seems to be philosophically aligned with you, and obviously that not just their love of Teddy, but just the need to need to be robust, to be re- resilient, to be almost a Renaissance man, if you will. Absolutely. Well, it's it, it's it's very much like you said. It's that Greek ideal, which I, I know is actually in your book as well. The the, the thing that uh. The, the concept that, that stirs me most is the idea of a uh, you know, the, the pursuit of excellence, uh, of excellences, and a, 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 a broad spectrum of excellences that we should be well-rounded. Um, so, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I think, Jim, that ties pretty well into the chapter you wrote in The Leader's Mind, as you alluded to, Shane, about about uh, a, a certain good Roman emperor, because there were sh- certainly some bad ones as well. But any thoughts there, Jim, in, in terms of that just kind of, you know, pursuit of both the warrior mindset, but also, as we mentioned, kind of the warrior poet, the warrior, philo- warrior f- philosopher, warrior writer. Yeah, that's a great connection because both these guys had everything, and yet they're more concerned about values and standards and and, you know, not necessarily what they want, but who they want to be. And uh, I just really get inspired by both of those guys. And Roosevelt, I mean, one of my favorite quotes is do what you can with what you have where you are. And, and that's a pretty good definition of mental toughness right there. Oh, I love that. 
Yeah. Um, Shane, speaking of mental toughness, how important has that been in your life and particularly the last few years? I mean, for folks that don't know, you adopted the kids, um, you wrote a book all while having a full-time job. You know, obviously you spent years kind of in the in the trenches with breaking muscle as well. So like us, you've always had kind of multiple daytime things to do and therefore we find ourselves doing things uh well not in my and gym case because uh, we're both night owls but maybe in your case either early in the morning or late at night so can you talk to us a little bit about the fortitude needed to to write a book while becoming a dad for the first time with not one but two kids and then um obviously being married as well and having a full-time job uh, 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 you know simultaneously and keeping all those plates spinning <laughs> yeah it's a uh... When you say it all at once, it, it seems <laughs> seems like a lot, but uh, well, it is. Give yourself credit. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it 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 takes a lot a uh, a lot of uh, commitment. Uh, you know, it, it takes a a clear idea of 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 what matters uh, and and why you're working for what you're working for. So, uh, it, 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 at a um, at probably 18 or 19, I had a uh, very, very influential, my, my head football coach, I I'd left him at that point, but he was talking through his, uh, his new commitment to, to a, uh, it was a workout regiment. He was, he was uh, committed to, and he said, uh, 99% is a wimp to me. Uh, he was talking about that. I, I won't miss days that 99% is a wimp and that, that stuck with me. And so that, that's kind of an approach I've taken uh, with habits and, and uh, it's helped build my will, I would say. But, but yeah, that getting up uh, at 4 a.m. Every, every morning for, for over four years, um, it, it was really hard some days, but it was, there was never, it was just kind of a non-negotiable that I was going to wake up, I was going to show up every day, I was going to put in, put in the work and the consistency is really, uh, you know, what, what, what makes everything happen. Um, and, and it makes having those habits where you, you don't even allow yourself to think about missing, uh, you know, just, you know, I'm going to show up every day. Uh, you know, even if it's just for an hour, I'm going to show up every day. Uh, that I think that is the most important thing. Uh, cause, cause every, you know, it, it, it's a training mentality. I'm a strength and conditioning coach too. And I know that every single day in the weight room, my teams are, are, are just, you know, very little bit better um, than they than, than they were the day before. Uh, on any given day, you could miss a workout and it would not be that big of a deal uh, other than the fact that you are uh, creating a habit of allowing yourself to miss. Uh, and, and, and it's the the adding up of each each centimeter improvement over time that that really makes the difference. For sure. Well, there's two of the C's there, Jim, that we talk about in terms of, uh, you know, the champion's mind, uh, you know, commitment would be one. And, you know, there's consistency in there. There's also concentration or focus. Um, anything stand out to you there from what Shane was saying in terms of his mental approach and then how that turns into to habits? Yeah, I love that as well. I mean, you know, progress is uh, we kind of all have to be an inchworm. You know, we, we want to make these big strides, but it's that little, those little incremental gains every day that champions tend to fall in love with. And uh, it doesn't always have to be in the same area, obviously. It could be, you know, with nutrition or the mental game or rest and recovery. But um, yeah, I'm a big fan of that as well. Um, and then I also like what you said, because that shows great leadership. You're not asking anyone to do what you're not willing to do. Um, and if you're getting up at four, 
not a lot of guys are going to be able to beat that. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that's just great role modeling. And then that gives them confidence uh, that, you know, the athletes that you work with, that they can do that as well. Uh, how long did it take for that to become sort of a habit or, you know, at least you kind of got over the hump with getting up that early. Um, I, I've always had a bit of, uh, I, I identified at, at a young age with, uh, the hardworking personality type. So that became part of my identity at a young age. And that was crucial for me. Um, I started to have success in sports. I had coaches who would compliment me as the hard worker, the guy who would run through a brick wall. And so uh, I think uh, when you have an identity like that, that really helps that you're, you're trying to prove that identity. Correct. Um, So, so it was perhaps the training background that, that, that made that possible. Um, I was a pretty good high school athlete, decided not to play in college. And uh, at, as an AB student, I then uh, decided to, I, I, I took that same commitment I had towards, uh, I previously had towards football, towards academics and uh, became a 4.0 student and uh, got into training and did the same thing there. Um, then I developed a, I may have been too extreme. So I, I, I uh, th- there were many causes uh, probably, uh, but I, I developed a, uh, something called Puro. It's a form of OCD. Um, and, and so I had to apply the same sort of discipline towards meditation and exposure therapy and some things there. So I think I had a kind of a pedigree that, that, that made it possible that I, I had many times set out to, uh, accomplish a goal and and then I had followed through so by by doing that at a young age uh you know it, it's kind of the old uh, Stanford marshmallow test you know mm-hmm. you do I was raised in that manner by my father so so by having these these progressively larger uh tasks of willpower that I completed and then built confidence in my ability to uh display the fortitude necessary to accomplish uh, a goal I, I think that gave me the the uh, the the ability uh, to know that whatever the goal is, I'll step up. Um, so it reminds me of uh, something I, I heard uh, in church last week, which I, I won't get the words exactly right, but the idea was was basically that um, life is gonna life is gonna challenge you really hard at different at different points of your life, uh, and. Uh, and so you should expect that and you should be training your fortitude all along for that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, fortunately, your dad didn't raise you in the Stanford prison experiment, <laughs> the Stanford marshmallow experiment where, you know, delayed gratification is so important. And I love that experiment. I, I wrote about that in the champion's mind, my first book uh, several years ago, but um, yeah. And tell us a little more. So I'm also, uh, I do sports psychology and, and counseling. So Tell us a little bit more about, you know, OCD and a lot of people aren't familiar with the Puro in terms of more just the obsessive part, but not necessarily the compulsive part, you know, hand washing, checking behaviors, those kind of things. So tell us what that was like and, and, and your experience with it and how you overcame it. Yeah. So that was, and and I'm a prideful personality, or at least I was growing up, um, one of, one of the great effects of the Puro was that, that I got into meditation and I really learned uh, about emotion, about mental health, um, you know, and to be to, to be aware of my own emotional state. Um, and, and, and I got into psychology. 
so that uh th that I've been able to maybe be a lot less prideful now <laughs> but uh but yeah I was I was very prideful at the time uh and and so uh, my sophomore year of college I started to notice uh, just kind of a low grade anxiety that was there and I couldn't shake uh and, and it got worse and worse the worse I tried to fight it away you know it, it, I, I just felt something and I started to fight it away um and then it began to, to kind of attach itself to uh, all sorts of, it, it, it's really hard to explain, um, but it, it, it started to it attach itself to increasingly bizarre uh, thoughts that I, I, I had to get rid of. Uh, I had to prove that these things could not happen. So, so one example is driving back from, from Fort Worth, Texas to St. Louis where my parents lived at the time. Um, I had the thought, that uh, which is a thought that that uh, everyone has these sorts of thoughts uh, a million times a day. I had the thought that, hey, if I turn the steering wheel really hard, I'm going 70 miles per hour, I'm going to flip the car and I'll be sent to my death, you know, and I'll pass as I'm passing someone or someone's passing me. The thought goes through your head then that, oh, if I slight, you know, turn the steering wheel, I would kill them, you know, and so that these these things, it sounds really, really uh, gruesome to say that out loud. But we have these thoughts all the time. You know, something Edgar Allan Poe called the imp of the perverse, the impulse of the perverse. You know, when you're holding a little, you know, a tiny infant and you realize like, oh, my goodness, this is so fragile. You know, I could just squeeze and, and you know, bad things would happen. We all have these thoughts. But I, because of my history with anxiety, you know, it's kind of a progressive thing as well, where I had progressively kind of... Uh, I would have these thoughts and I would think, well, because I have this thought, does this mean I'm going to do it? Most of us have the confidence to say, ain't no way. But I, I, I had to prove to myself that, no, I wouldn't do that. So I remember this one, this one road trip, I had to, you know, pull over to the side of the road and calm myself down, you know, just, just try to trust myself that I'm not going <laughs> to flip the car off the side of the road. Uh, but, you know, in part of you, you, you all sorts of mental games go on where you're you're saying to yourself, uh, you know, is this is this uh, irresponsible for me to be driving right now? Uh, and you know, th there's a lot of terror in that. I was a perfectionist, and you know, so here I am, a couple years from becoming a teacher. Is like, is it irresponsible for me to become a teacher? Do I need to go into rehab? And then there's the shame that would come with that. So I had all sorts of things packaged into one going on, and. Um, being the, uh, the the prideful guy I was, I I, I eventually figured it all out for my, myself, uh, which is not the way I would ever advise people. It's why I like to talk about this. Um, and uh, it, it began with uh, something called the Linden Method, uh, which kind of just opened my eyes. It wasn't a cure-all, but it opened my eyes to the role of anxiety was playing with this. Um, and then and then I, I I found exposure therapy and I found meditation. And the combination um, over, over the course of uh, a year or so was, you know, uh, it, it changed everything. And now I still meditate because I, uh, I've just found the, the benefits uh, so overwhelming. Jim, um, what's, your, what's your take there just from a professional capacity and just kind of, you know, um, what you've seen in terms of maybe working with others that, that have this kind of manifestation of a component of OCD, like Shane was saying. Yeah, it's a, it's a real struggle, isn't it, Shane? I mean, it's a, it's a civil war going on in your head. And, 
you know, thoughts lead to feelings and behaviors. And then, you, you know, so when you have those thoughts, you know, it's hard not to take them at face value, but um, you don't want to necessarily give those a lot of airtime or think that, hey, this means there's something really bad about me or anything necessarily to be ashamed about. It's your, it's kind of like you're overprotecting what could happen badly, you know, in terms of trying to prevent it. Um, and, um, and, and it can be used, obviously, in your case, is perfect example of, you know, how do I use this in some ways to my benefit, you know, in terms of learning more about myself, learning more about mental health, learning more about meditation and mindfulness, uh, reaching out for help. You said that, you know, most of us are way too prideful with that kind of stuff, you know. Sure. Um, and so I think your story is really powerful for everyone. And it's a great story now, especially because everyone's more open to talking about mental health issues. And back just even maybe five, 10, 15 years ago, uh, everyone suffered in silence. And now more people are just, hey, this is what I'm dealing with, you know, makes me human. Um, and more people are like, you too. And so, um, yeah, but it's tough. And, and, um, and I'm sure the exercise helps a lot and, and relying on the, all these resources, but it's a good lesson for listeners that, um, you know, nip things in the bud a little bit sooner rather than later. Uh, and there's no shame. I mean, Phil and I always talk about, you know, being in need is not being in trouble. Um, but, you know, and so I'm glad our society is changing in that way, in terms of it's okay to be human and, and reach out for help and mental health without mental health, there's no help. No. Um, but on the other hand too, we're kind of creating a lot of, you know, mental health problems and, and enablement and so forth. And so, uh, that's why, you know, Phil and I like to go back to values and, you know, who do you want to be and those kind of things. Um, what, any other quick lessons for others struggling with anxiety or other mental health issues? And at some point I like to joke with clients that if you never are struggling with anxiety or depression or these sorts or relationship issues, you're either dead or you're lying. So, um, but yeah, tell us a little bit more about maybe some other lessons learned, any advice in terms of mental health, because it is such an important topic. The, the, the biggest thing that, that comes, uh, first and foremost is that I thought at the worst that I was going to deal with this forever. I was in the hole and, and it was just like, okay, I'm going to have to learn to live with this forever. And, you know, and again, you know, back to, you know, can I get, can I ever get married? Is this, you know, is this something that would be uh, irresponsible for me to raise kids? So I, I felt like this was forever and, and I was going to, I was shutting all these doors uh, to all these dreams I had. Um, and it's it, the, so first and foremost, you can work out of this uh, at, at least, at least in, from, from what I understand, uh, I, I imagine that, that, that almost everything can be improved. Uh, and, and I'm at a point now where, uh, not only have I worked past it, I'm so much better for it. Um, the other thing that, that just some some breakthroughs for me uh, was the understanding that the voice in my head isn't necessarily me, uh, that I can have a thought uh, and I don't have to fight it or flee it. I can just let it go. So emotions take a ton of energy to maintain. Um, and, and and so uh, in the in the depths of pure O, when I would feel an emotion or uh, uh, have a thought that provoked anxiety, I would fight it away like hell, or start you know trying trying to scramble like oh no, this thought just came and now now my day is ruined, uh, and it's been a revelation that no, you just 
If you stop thinking, stop fighting this away, stop thinking about them, start, stop scrambling and just let it go. Um, then, then it'll go away on its own. The emotion will go away on its own. You'll lose interest with it. Um, so that was, that was really a revelation. It's the sort of thing I think everyone, uh, would, would really benefit from learning. And, and, and I learned it through, through meditation, uh, just, just to let a thought go, not to, ha- not to always have to attach myself, uh, to thoughts. Um, so, you know, the, the ability to not be swept away. Um, and the other thing I learned was that thought, uh, emotions are physical before they're mental. Um, so, so recognizing when I felt anxious in my body and, and what that did physiologically to myself, uh, and, and so when you can kind of search short circuit that uh, and, and, and change your change your physio and change your posture uh, and, and move on uh, rather than being overtaken, uh, that that's that's really powerful. Yeah, it's, it's really important in terms of what you just said there that, um, you know, it's hard to be anxious in the body and then uh, relax in the mind and vice versa. Like, you know, if, so in other words, if you're having a lot of worrisome thoughts, you could relax your body and that's going to help with the worrisome thoughts, or you could do meditation and, you know, and, and whatnot, and that could help relax your body. So uh, the mind body connection is really cool, isn't it? It's really powerful. Uh, But I also like in terms of the mental health piece, I love how you said, you know, there's hope. uh, And that's what I love about depression, anxiety, all these things is, I don't think you necessarily want to get to zero on any of these, you know, in terms of, you know, experience in any, any of these. Uh, but, uh, but we could definitely lower the volume greatly. Um, and so there's hope for everyone with any sort of mental health condition. Um, and then I love that you found some things that work for you. And then also you use, you know, what you were dealing with to make you stronger in other areas. So um it's been a pretty cool journey. Um, and it's one of those where, you know, you probably don't wish it on your worst enemy, but on the other hand, uh, you wouldn't take it back. Oh, I, I shudder to think of who I would be if I hadn't had that experience. Now I'd be, you know, far less as a, as a, as a human, less empathetic, um, but, but far less as a leader, far less able to help people, uh, and to understand, you know, as a coach, the, the, as a coach, it, it's amazing how um, how few athletes have any mastery over their mind. Uh, it, it, they are raw emotion. Their emotions run them, and they have no ability to recognize a state and, and, and say, oh, that's not helpful right now, and to move their attention somewhere else. You know, the, uh, it, it's why you see, of course, uh, you know, Pat Fitzgerald at, at Northwestern, what's important now, when, you know, the, you know, Nick Saban calls it the process. There's uh, Shannon Turley at Stanford is the process, uh, but um, the process mindset idea has taken hold uh, because it's so it, 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 it's so effective. Um, and, you know, that's basically what we're t- talking about when we're talking about what meditation is, you know, getting your, your focus where it needs to be. Yeah, it kind of ties into what you say, Jim, like be where your feet are, right? Or as uh, Coach Jeff Delman said in an earlier episode, be where your family's feet, feet are when you're with them, like be all, all there. Yeah, or if you're a predator, be where your claws are. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you definitely want to be a predator on the field. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit more about uh, your meditation practice. Any tips for 
athletes, you know, that's another area that's become much more popular these days for good reason. You know, 10 years ago, you never hear an athlete or very rarely hear an athlete say that, you know, they're big on meditation. What do you like to do in terms of meditation? Any advice for someone that's thinking about trying it? Yeah. So I got into it through Headspace, the app Headspace, mm -hmm. which was great. I know a lot of people uh, really like Calm. Um, I really like Headspace. The foundations pack was wonderful. Uh, they have specific packs for specific needs. So I, I did the anxiety pack like, like 20 times. Uh, and that was that was really uh, helpful. But uh, you could never go through all the meditations th that they offer for, for every, every uh, different interest, for, you know, for focus. Um, it, but also, you know, now I've, I've gotten to where I, I like to apply uh, that in, in other ways. So I've actually not done a, uh, a formal meditation on Headspace for a while now, uh, for a couple months. Um, I've gotten really into cold plunges. And, uh, and, and that's where that's where the, the breathing uh, helps so much. And you can really see the connection between uh, the, the mind and the body. You jump into cold plunge at 47 degrees, um, and it's, uh, it, it, it takes you over. Um, uh, it's, it's really hard, <laughs> you know, it, it does not feel good. It hurts, uh, and you want to get out. But, um, I found over time that those, that, you know, at first I was just doing, it wasn't meditating through it and it hurt, uh, cause I was always wishing myself out. I was always thinking how much time and looking at the clock. Uh, but when I started to apply the meditation, uh, approach, I was, I would get to a point where I wasn't even noticing that it was cold. I was just where I was. And it was a really profound realization. Uh, and, 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 you know, imagine if you could apply that to every point of your life. <laughs> but it's yeah. a good point though, because sometimes even the, you find with the, the very anticipation of it, right? It's the opposite of looking outdoors and, and maybe you checked your phone or her weather app before and you saw it's, oh, it's 72 and sunny and you step outside and like that, ah, oh, that nice warmth, you know, the kind of weather sprinters like or football players like, um, and, and, you know, even your anticipation of, of taking that first step outside your door on a sunny day kind of feels good. Whereas the cold, you kind of come to dread it, which is why I stopped doing it. <laughs> but I shouldn't. And, and not only that, but um, like you were saying a minute ago, Jim, the mind-body connection, you feel your, your traps start to come up and tighten. So you almost mentally go into that fight, flight, or freeze sympathetic state before you even get in. And then when you get in for the first time, obviously – um, a lot of people were getting feet first. I've never known anyone to go head first, um, unless you're totally crazy. But then there are, you know, more nerves in your hands, feet and face um, in terms of the peripheral nervous system than in the rest of your body combined because they're sensory organs. So you get feel that first sensation on your feet before you even get should be say further up. And it's just unpleasant. And our natural response is again to recoil. So was there some symmetry there initially with kind of the, the feelings that you used to feel when your, your thoughts were running out of control? Yeah, it, it's easy to recognize that, 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 it's, that it's like, okay, this is what's happening. I can, you know, I can feel, feel my traps against my ears. So mm -hmm. it's easy to recognize what's going on here. So I, it wasn't very challenging to make the connection that, mm -hmm. okay, let's try to do the opposite. Let's pull your shoulders down. Let's stop fighting this. Uh, and let's, let's kind of accept where you are. Uh, so, so yeah, absolutely. It, it, was, it, was, uh, it, was, it wasn't a hard connection to make. I'll, I'll say that. 
Um, and, and just a little story background. I've, I've started a, uh, a, a high school. It's a juniors, juniors only right now. And I'm kind of growing it. I wanted to start to make an impact. So it's a men's group. It's a men's self-mastery group. I actually call it the order of Arete. Uh, you know, I, I made little invitations. I gave it to all of them, you know, individually. And, uh, and, and uh, we, you know, we're trying to set rituals and, and come up with ways where we'll onboard new members. And uh, we, we're, we're working towards a rite of passage that we're all going to do, you know, to, to really, you know, you know, become a man versus just the passage of time. Uh, so, so the first thing we do every day, uh, or every meeting, we meet twice, a, twice a week uh, before school. And uh, they come in, and the first thing we do is do a cold plunge. Uh, and and to, for me, it was it was just that it was it, it was it was to train that ability. You know, it, I would love to meditate with high schoolers, but I don't think the lesson uh, sinks in as quickly as as when you start to apply it in a real physical context, which is you know why sport is so amazing. But it's ex- exactly what you're describing that when you first when you first uh, w- when you watch these these guys jump in for the first time their eyes bulge you know there's some of them probably shout right like ah. yes oh oh yeah, yeah. there's there's yeah. noise there's this there's that and you know and then you'll see that you know what one young man i remember his first time he was doing well and then he started to, to say how much more time how much more time so you could see him go from doing well to uh to to all of a sudden it, it overtook him how uncomfortable it was when he started to think about the time uh, you know, he was, he was even bragging about how it was good. And then it, then it became overwhelming because he was, he was like, all right, now I'm thinking about the time. It, uh, it's really interesting how, how the, the, the mind is, is so powerful. Um, I love the, what you said about setting rituals to kind of not just daily rituals, but all, almost um, rites of passage you mentioned as well. Because one of the themes of your book, Setting the Bar, to me seems to be that we unwittingly or wittingly or a combination of both are creating perma-children in a way people who never and, and, and an example you've given to me before is these kids who are in college and their parents are phoning the professor to say how dare you give my kid a b they deserved an a they told me they handed everything in on time they got straight a's in high school so you see this helicopter parenting almost or steamroller parenting extending to college age kids and beyond. And it's like, what are you going to do? Take your mom or dad with you to your first job interview, you know, after college? Like that isn't sustainable. But can you talk to us in ancient cultures a little bit, you know, whether it's in Scotland with having to lift the dinny stones, you know, the kind of thing that they now accomplish, uh, you know, incorporate into strongman events and that kind of thing, or you know, in certain villages, they'd have to pick up a rock and throw it over this stone wall or this this sort of thing. Can you talk to us about the, the importance of rites of passage in ancient cultures and how we've kind of lost that formal transition from childhood to adulthood? Yeah, it's, I think that what happened, what happened to, to, to where we are now is that in ancient cultures, there's this real sense that we need this person to be capable of these essential skills for the survival of our people, right? our culture, for our culture to progress as we want it to do, um, or, or, or to serve, you know, just to survive. We, we rely on them to hunt, to be a warrior. Um, the modern context uh, is, that, is that we don't rely on them to be soldiers anymore. You, know, you think back uh, just a few generations, uh, if you, if, 
you you would have either gone to World War One, uh, you were in the Great Depression, World War Two, Korea, or Vietnam. There was this expectation growing up that you were you were going to have to be ready for some grand challenge. So society in general knew that it had to make you capable. There was no illusion that that we could graduate a a perma baby. Uh, it, that would we would all understand how mean that would be to do do to someone who had these challenges ahead of them. Well, there are great challenges ahead anyway, uh, you know, that aren't necessarily war for all of us. So it's just as mean now to do it, uh, but we don't recognize it as a society. So, so, so yeah, the, 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 the previous understanding of every society is that we have to create a certain level of competency, of, of, of virtue, of ability to display these virtues uh, we have to create that. This was the chief objective of every society was to create what, you know, their definition of great people. Uh, and I don't think we, we, I think we've shifted, you know, probably because of consumerism and the, the ease of, inter, uh, uh, the easy, easy access to, to entertainment and the convenience uh, that we're getting from a lot of our technologies. But we've just, I think a lot of that is lost, that sense that we have to create capable contribution-oriented, duty-oriented uh, citizens who, ex- you know, who we expect to be able to embody certain, certain virtues, uh, that's, that's really just not even a, a thought that goes through most adults' minds. Yeah, most of us tend to look for uh, the softer, <laughs> you know, whatever's easier, quicker, softer, and, and it's hard to, to respect yourself, you know, unless you push yourself. And and I, I love the idea to, you know, that it's okay to push your kids, just don't shove them. But if you're not pushing them in a positive direction, then we're really setting them up for failure, like you're talking about. And I used to tell parents in, when I did more counseling work that, you know, it's okay to take care of your, you know, do everything you want for your kids and do everything, you know, so they don't have to do it for themselves. But only if you could promise that you could do it for their whole life, you know, and if you can't promise that you could do it for their entire life, then at some point they're going to need to stand on their own two feet. And uh, so it's that balance between support and challenge, I think is, is, is what you're kind of hitting on. And then just the importance of, you know, again, values, Um, you know, uh, preparing people for their hardest days, you know, uh, because everyone's going to hit a wall or struggle or, you know, adversity is going to strike. And then when that happens, are you going to say, you know, you know, the the idea of like, why me or try me, you know, let's go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you think um, is entitlement one of the hallmarks of a, of a, as you said it, like a perma baby, a perma child? And if so, how does that manifest itself? Because I know in the book you you speak on this subject quite quite extensively. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think in, entitlement is certainly uh, it's this expectation that the the world owes you something versus rather than you owing the world something, or that the world should bend into your uh, to, to your will, the uh, this goes goes ties right into your last question, which uh, you, you know, I think the the mindset of the ancients was that they had to bring themselves into harmony with with the natural order, uh, and and probably a consequence of, of of our technology. The typical mindset now is that we have to we have to rein in the world we we have to master the world and, and bend it to our own will uh and i don't think that that that's a, a, 
a good recipe for fulfillment uh, in any way, shape, or form. So yeah, and how does entitlement manifest? Um, I, it it's when you raise your children and you give them chores and you give them expectations and you root them in a sense of community and uh, an understanding. You talk about the things that that we that we receive from our community. Uh, they see a model of of people who are are. are, are always contributing to the world in, in some way, shape or form, you throw away your trash, you don't litter, um, then then your kids naturally develop, you know, they will not be entitled, um, or will, will be far less likely to be entitled. Uh, but when there's this, this, this uh, tendency to litter, or, uh, or when we do everything for them, uh, when there are no chores, there are no expectations, there's there's no, never this sense that I'm receiving X and uh, part of that is, is an obligation that I have as well. Um, then uh, it's, uh, it's a recipe for entitlement, but I also think it's, it's, a, it's a recipe for, for depression because you can't, you can't possibly, um, you are an isolated individual expecting everyone else to appease you. Uh, and I think connection is where the real fulfillment uh, is possible. Um, you know, one thing I've, I've come to find, find lately, uh, like, like many millennials, um, uh, I had some, you know, uh, challenges with, with, with the religion I was given as a child growing up. And I've, I'm coming back, uh, going to church and in these things. But, you know, regardless of what listeners think about any specific religion, uh, when you when you sit down and you pray before every meal, you're going through all the things you have to be grateful for. Uh, that is a daily discipline that you're going through. That is that is training you not to be so entitled, um, it, to some degree or another. Anyway, yeah, that fits with that. mindfulness too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, think about you know how often do we sit down and eat a meal and think about where the meal came from and all yeah. the steps um, to get to our plate. Um, but yeah, even just taking that moment just to kind of take stock of the world, you know, and, and pray or meditate or, you know, breathe is so powerful um, because we're always go, go, go. Yeah. And I think, you know, one antidote, Jim, you always say to entitlement is gratitude, as you just mentioned, Shane. But then another one is is kind of servant leadership, right? So whether that's volunteering, like in our community with um, what just happened with the fires, you know, down in Denver, or you don't even have to go that far, you know, what is a step you you see a neighbor struggling with a heavy piece of furniture, and there's already two guys over there, but you think that third might make a difference. And you just spend two or three minutes helping them get it in the living room or get that wood into their garage for that storage area, they're trying to build up in that higher area, whatever it might be. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to go be a missionary in a foreign field to to make a difference in your community, right? So I love what you said about gratitude and then also servant leadership as kind of both antidotes to uh, to that entitlement and how it manifests itself. Yeah, um, it's... Yeah. yeah, and then also just raising the expectations. So talk to us a little bit, um, Shane, about why you chose the title Setting the Bar. And you and I both know that wasn't the original title, but why yeah. did it become Setting the Bar? And why is it important to to set expectations for our kids and then help them kind of go along the, the steps with goal setting and daily rituals and habits that will help get them to their goals and, and reach a high bar or jump over it, preferably. Yeah. So 
I, I think of everything in a cultural lens. I think that's it's, it's so important to understand the power of the culture that you are in. Um, and, and so like with, with raising young adults, raising kids, the, the likelihood is that their peer group will have equal to, if not maybe a little bit more influence than you do, at least in their teenage years. It's so crucial. Uh, the nurture effect, I forget who wrote that, but basically made that argument. Um, and uh, we're in a time where we have all these forces pulling us down, right? So we are we are being pulled down, uh, you know, or to a lower form of ourselves uh, by the, the uh, easy access and the cultural acceptance of junk food. Uh, we're being pulled down by the, uh, the, the literally addictive nature of uh, our technology and the way that the technology is, is learning from us to become even more addictive. And then on top of that, we're also being pulled down by the cultural acceptance of these norms. Um, so I, I saw a lot that was, that was pulling us down. And, and in my mind, we have to have at least as much pressure pulling people up. Uh, so I'm a big believer in standards. Standards are, uh, you know, virtues are a form of standard, uh, but standards are uh, their poles that pull you up, that, that pull you to aspire, that pull you to be to uh, to be something more. Uh, and there, and and the the beauty of a standard is is that um, when when the standard is set, uh, the culture knows what it what it cares about. There's clarity. Okay, so that that there can become support systems to get you there. It's not necessarily a, a means of, of shaming people who can't reach the standard. Uh, we've seen over and over again that 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 tends to not what be what it is in good cultures. Good cultures, you know, La Sierra High School, their PE program is a great example of that, where they have these these high standards and these this this means of working up uh, the ladder, um, and, and that that is I think necessary for true sense of confidence, uh, but more now than ever, having standards has to be there uh, in order to, to offset uh, this, this, this gravitational pull to, uh, to, 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 to impulse, basically. Uh, you know, we have both our, our natural impulses and we have these hypernormal stimuli that will, that will uh, addict us uh, more readily than, than anything in the past would, but also this cultural acceptance of this behavior yeah and also things um so we'll get into the socials or anti-socials as we could call them in a minute but um buy it now one click functions you know to remove in quotes remove friction when you have one of the leading universities in california that has an addictive technology program and lab and it's churning people out and spitting them into Silicon Valley to create ever more addictive technologies. And you said it, right. I mean, it's the extractive attention economy, right? It's combined with the surveillance state. Like these are problems because we're encouraging impulsivity. We're constantly pricking the sympathetic nervous system to keep us in fight, flight or flight. And then um, you can plant any thought you like when people are in that state because things never reach beyond the base of the brainstem. So Talk to us a little bit more about the dangers of instant gratification and rewarding impulsivity in young people, particularly. 
I would consider the smartphone Pandora's box. It, it, it's uh, you can try to limit it, but but once it's open, uh, the the pull is, is is so overwhelming. So I've seen this firsthand. My school district, uh, my first year, they they started the the uh, iPad initiative. Okay, where they were going to get an iPad in every every student's hands in, in the high school level, and then you know go from there. Uh, and this was this big push, and teachers had to get iPad trained, and we had to we had to uh, you know l- learn to get get all of our PowerPoints. If we were going to give a PowerPoint, needed to, to automatically sync to their iPad, so they could just look at the iPad and swipe along with us. Somehow, doing it there was going to be better than looking up and being part of one big unit. We thought is you know the the wave of the future was to have every kid staring at a screen, um, and every time I went to work with a, a, a kid through their iPad. I started to notice that there is just this constant succession, ding, 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 um, it, rapid fire, maybe more than 10 per minute uh, message groups, just just going because they, they're in these large message groups with all these friends. And then I start to notice that they are, you know, you know, I come around and they're really they're really good at pressing the home button twice and, and toggling back and forth between uh, what they should be working on and this game that they're able to play live with their friends. Um, and there's all these different temptations at all times. And then, of course, we've seen uh, the, the, the depression, the increases in depression are, are particularly bad with, uh, with girls uh, in, in the last decade or so, um, you know, because they are more likely to, uh, to, to spend more time on social media. And you can only, you know, not only are you, uh, are you checking social media constantly to see how your last post went, but you have the ability to take pictures of yourself and filter them and see what people say about that. And there's this, this comparison, this, you know, kind of highlight. Mm-hmm. Yes. We're, we're, we're always looking and, and, and thinking everyone's lives are better than they are, so which m- m- must make ours uh, bad uh, in contrast. So, you know, this is a, this is an overwhelming uh, pressure uh, to, uh, to, to give to kids uh, particularly to give it to them right at the moment where their brains are, are, are hardwired to care what other people think uh, more than ever before. Uh, and so I think that we as a society have not done a good enough job of recognizing that, hey, then, you know, society has is, is, is changed a lot. We've had some issues in the, in the last decade. Uh, and a lot of them are, maybe not all, but a lot of them are at least exacerbated by, if not, you know, caused by, it's two-way street probably, um, this, uh, this technology. And, 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 you know, like you said, you know, it, it, it's, it, it affects adults too. It's probably affected everyone's budget, the ease of, of, of buying things. It's frictionless. Um, so my argument wouldn't be that, you know, I, I'm not a Luddite. I, I don't think that we can get rid of this. Uh, I, I also see the, the fantastic benefits in many regards. But this is the chief, chief challenge of the modern world. And we should be much more intentional about training people uh, to combat it. Um, com- coming up with a sort of uh, tech manners if you will, uh, you know, tech norms, civility. Yeah. Yeah. Of civility. Uh, we should, I think that, that the school system not only has a duty to limit it, you know, if you go, go through my school, kids are walking down the hall, swiping through their phone, you know, anytime that there's, that they can, they have their phone out in class at the end of class, every kid has their phone out probably as they're waiting. And so this discourages actual communication, 
Um, you know, myself, I, I felt the effects when the book came out, I had to get back on social media. I had to do these things. And the, the, even me, the guy that has all these, these rules for how I'm going to use it and everything. I, I find myself in every, I, I, I couldn't go to the bathroom to pee without holding my phone in the other hand. I mean, it, it's a significant, it is amazing how it just embeds its way. Uh, it learns from you. It, it learns how, uh, how to, 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 to addict you more or less, or, or or, or create this need, this this urge to always check. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think we have to be much more intentional about how we limit it in schools and also start to teach uh, tech tech manners, tech norms, expectations of how you uh, how you separate the phone uh, from from uh, from yourself as you're working, how you get into deep work. Uh, how, you know, that, that maybe we, we set our settings so that social media isn't dinging us at all times that we have to go to these apps that, you know, I, I think a standardized, uh, process to hand to kids, uh, and, 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 and to parents, the biggest thing is that, that, you know, one of the biggest ways that schools could really help is to, uh, start doing parent education where they advocate, uh, in the community, Hey, let's start to give our kids this, the smartphone later. You know, if at all possible before high school, let's not give them a smartphone because it's so challenging if you're, you know, I, I have an 11 year old daughter and all her friends ha have had a smartphone for two years. You know, I don't think that's good. But at what point am, am I hurting her worse by keeping her out of this entire world that her friends are in? Um, so, you know, we, we really put these parents in a bind when there's no leader stepping up and clarifying, hey, these these are the, you know, you might think this is okay because everyone else is doing. These are the real issues we're seeing, and this is responsible use as, as we're advocating it. And I think that's really possible uh, if we can get our heads around it. If, if you look back at history, uh, the, the, we used to drink alcohol uh, at, the, at the break of dawn uh, in, in agricultural communities. You know, whiskey was so cheap. Uh, and, and so, so alcoholism... Um, was, was a real issue that, uh, you know, there's all sorts of, of, you know, tech manners that have sprung up or not tech manners, sorry, manners that have sprung up around alcohol. Don't drink before five, you know, all these kind of things that, that developed socially. So that would be my hope with technology. Oh, I love that. Um, one of the concepts you mentioned there and something Jim and I have, have riffed on a lot and kind of applied to our own work is Cal Newport's book, Deep Work. And we're hoping to get Cal on at some point. If you're listening, Cal, respond to my emails. It'll be a lot of fun for two hours. But anyway, nonsense aside, um, deep work is something that you had to practice while, you know, you were going through the adoption process and then you have both the kids and now suddenly you're not just um, a teacher and also a husband, but a father as well. And you have a full-time job and you're, you know, writing um, articles still and doing this and that. But then this book project comes along. So, can you talk to us for a minute about how you were able to apply some of the, you know, Cal Newport's deep work philosophy and others, you know, whether it be time blocking or just the things you and I have talked about, like find it almost, some people might call it a safe space to write, but a productive place, a distraction free place to write. And again, that kind of comes back to uh, one of the words you use in, in the subhead of, of the book, setting the bar is distraction. So how were you able to manage distraction during the book research and writing process and also apply deep work? Yeah, at a young age, uh, I think in college, I remember being shocked. I would go to the library to, to study for finals and uh, all my friends would be congregated in groups with their laptops up, showing each other, you know, 
always taking breaks and and, and uh, showing each other little videos on Facebook. Facebook was the thing at the time, and and I remember I would go to the you know the the, the furthest corner of the library and say. So I think I think my understanding of the need for that was was embedded at a young age from my father. He would tell me stories of medical school and studying, and and so I kind of had a sense of like this is how you actually work, um, but. The, the, the finding the right spot is, is crucial during during the uh, COVID lockdowns that the that you know two month period where school was canceled it was it was the worst writing I ever did because it was distracted writing and, and I was trying but the kids were knocking at the door and it would it was just rough uh, so finding a good spot is really crucial and then separating yourself from the temptation um, it, uh, the, the the smartphone is, is going to be bad news. Turn it on airplane mode or put it in the drawer. Um, you know, if, if you're really trying to focus, uh, you, you want to separate yourself from distraction as much as possible. Um, and and also uh, to uh, to batch your work periods, too. OK, so that, you know, uh, that you'll be able to whatever it is that that's likely to distract you or come to mind. You know, there's a period each day where you will uh, be, be taken care of that. So email is a big one, I think for a lot of people too, you know, I check yeah, email sure. twice a day. Uh, you know, I check, you know, there, there's, there's a morning kind of mid morning check. And then there's a late afternoon check before I leave. And that, th that's typically, um, the only times I'll check emails. I try to keep that firm and it keeps you from kind of flittering back and forth, uh, you know, toggling without being able to get into, in, into deep work. Uh, you know, the, 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 the real threat today is that with your phone on you, with with email connected to your phone, with with text messages dinging dinging you, uh, you can you can constantly be pulled away and being having having to toggle between uh, di different different uh, different tasks, and um, that's really not a recipe for for high quality work. I love that. Um, my friend Jason Ferruja, who you know from you know, the strength training community laughed at me one time. He was like, bro, you still have email on your phone? Like, get rid of that. And then my friend Colby Knapp, um, who used to be my editor, my first editor at Train Heroic, um, literally made me take it off one day. He was like, we're going to do this together right now. Get it gone. <laughs> so it's gone. Um, and, and it really does make a huge difference. Yeah, because for me, it's not the socials that are the danger zone because I'm trying to practice minimalism and Frankly, due to Jim's big audience, I don't even know why I bother. But you justify it, right? With the, oh, well, I need to promote the book or, oh, this sure. or, oh, well, that. Well, that's a good intention. Or, oh, I need to get back to someone who wrote me a message. But then you emerge bleary-eyed an hour later. So it's never the first thing. But like you say, when there are entire labs at colleges developed to designing and perpetuating addictive technology, the supercomputer algorithms are you know, your brain is no match for that as an individual. So I love that you mentioned a concept there around boundary setting. Um, what time of day or night did you identify? Was it those early hours for writing the book? And did you have a number of pages or a word limit? Or was it simply as Jim alluded to earlier, just wanting to advance the ball? It was morning. Uh, it was, yeah, so so I was 4 a.m., uh, on on bad days for 4 30 <laughs> yeah uh, but yeah it was 4 a.m i um that i woke up i actually i changed i was always kind of tuning my process so i found at a certain point that i was actually far better writer after a workout so i would i would i would do a 30 minute workout first and and, and i was far better then uh um but uh 
as as I got along, I also learned that uh, shorter shorter was probably better. Uh, I had a, a tendency to to work from say you know, five to eight, have a session I had to run, uh, or, or five to seven thirty, have a session I had to run uh, for an hour, and then try to work again uh, for another two hours. And uh, the the second session was always horrible. Um, and so I, I learned that I had to respect my physio- physiological needs. I had to take walks when I needed to take a walk. I, I, I had to take breaks when I needed to take, take breaks. And I had to limit the amount of, of really high quality riding I, I could expect to do in a day. So I learned to do, um, I'm forgetting Dan Pink's latest book, but I got the idea from that, um, that you know, my mornings were my creative block. Uh, and then it, I moved, is it just called when? Uh, I can't, I, I really can't remember. There's um, so many good ones that he has. Yeah, yeah. I have drive right behind me, but I can't remember that one. Um, yeah. But, but yes, it, you know, the, the mornings were my creative blocks and then uh, I would, you know, gradually shift to more task oriented uh, blocks as I went throughout the day. Well, that's interesting. Jim, how about for you? When, when is your prime writing time? Well, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of thoughts are coming to mind. One is, uh, uh, you know, you want to make things more efficient, but I also like the idea of that there's so much power in how you frame things. So for example, uh, one of the pro baseball players I'm working with said, yeah, I had a sports psychologist that, you know, said, Hey, don't leave your phone by the, you know, by the bed so that it makes it harder to, you know, just immediately check it in the morning. And as we're talking, you know, we're talking about, well, um, yeah, that could make it easier for you, but why not just have it right there by your bed and then refuse to get on it in the morning? And he liked that because it almost like was a, was, was a greater challenge, you know, like instead of trying to make it easier for me, make it right there where I could pick it up, but I'm not going to. And that gave him like, you know, it made him feel better about himself um, that he didn't have to nerf his room, so to speak, you know, so that it made it easier for him. It made it a bigger challenge for him. Um, so, I, you know, that kind of popped into my mind, you know, in terms of, you know, also too, it's, it's, it remi- reminds me of a, a golfer, you know, if they're always practicing where it's perfectly quiet, the, you know, the, the grass is perfectly flat, you know, and the ground that they're on, well, good luck when you're in a tournament with screaming fans. So find some time where you practice on the range where there's a bunch of noise and distractions around. So it depends what you're doing and why, and, you know, and how you frame it, I think is Love really that. important. Yeah, Jim, we just talked about the, the Nims Perger documentary, which if people has, aren't familiar, he climbed the, the 14 um, 8,000 meter plus peaks in record time. And if you have Jimmy Chin and, and Ronald Messner um, applauding you on that and being part of your project and being like, this is incredible. But Jimmy said, I can't even imagine that Nims got up on a hangover and climbed this one peak in the Himalaya in one day. Like people... One, take three, four, five days a week, 10 days, whatever, to climb this peak if they're successful. And, you know, checking it later, there's a pretty high failure rate of summit bids on that mountain because of how dangerous and sketchy it is. And in winter, by the way. So Nims and the guys went out, went out in Kathmandu um, and had a few beers and then then went up the mountain on two hours of sleep and did it in one day. Like, and that brings me back to an idea that Andy Galpin shared with me one time, which is you can't always be optimizing. Yeah. 
Like it's yeah. good to create conditions for success, but there are going to be curveballs. Or even Cal Newport mentions this in, he calls it like journalistic flow, I think, in deep work, where a guy would be, you know, like it, I always think of Sebastian Younger with this, right? With with his work when he was embedded both with fire jumpers for his book Fire and then um, with troops in the Middle East, you know, for Restrepo and the book that accompanied the documentary where he's having to file copy banging out words on a helicopter, you know, in 30 minutes because his editor needs it like now. That's journalistic flow. So, so as you said, Jim, suboptimal conditions, but yet being able to get somehow trigger yourself or get some flow triggers that can function in chaos. Shane, have you any kind of, you know, um, lessons there in terms of when things happen? Because it sounds like you were still moving the ball forward while the kids were banging at the door or coming in every <laughs> five minutes. Or So how have you learned to thrive in chaos and get into that kind of journalistic flow or deadline flow when you've had to? Yeah, that that's uh, that, I think what you're striking at uh, that I really like is that there's kind of a distinction. There is an optimal, uh, but that that you know once you've pulled yourself out of uh, of the low level, you know, if you're if you're just starting nutrition, you know, to pay attention to nutrition and and exercise, then you want to optimize as much as possible. You want to make it simple. You want to shorten. You want to make the barrier to entry really low. Um, but after after you've been doing it forever, you should you should expect to, to to be able to overcome all sorts of challenges. That's why you've you've been training and 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 maybe intentionally set those those difficulties in the way. Um, you know that, that it's it's a difficulty that you overcome every day to jump in a cold plunge in, in the morning, and so that kind of gives you it gives you the will. That's how you build the will to do that. Um, so yeah. The, one of the, the the things that comes to mind is is when when I had uh, when I first had kids, uh, you know, I adopted. I I went from zero to two, uh, and, and over the night, overnight, I had an eighteen month old and a newborn, um, and it's like, well. You know, I was sick and tired of everyone telling me, "Oh, yeah, you're you're healthy. Well, wait till you get kids. You won't you won't exercise. You won't do this." So, so I was gonna find a way, <laughs> and, uh, and and so you just you you get creative at that point. Um, so you you know, so it's like okay, uh, whenever you know X happens, uh, or you know during nap time, uh, I'm gonna do uh, a Cindy. You know, I'm gonna do I'm gonna have a pull up bar handy. I'm gonna do five pull-ups, 10 push-ups, 15 air squats uh, until whatever, uh, you know, and, and you know, if, if Neely's given the bottle this time, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. So you just kind of create, uh, you innovate, adapt, and overcome. Uh, that, that, that's the recipe. That's what that every successful person does because it's never going to be optimal uh, all the time. So whenever you can try to optimize for the, un, you know, unoptimal uh, situation, that would be the smart thing to do, uh, but it will not be perfect. Yeah, and I love what you're you're speaking to. There is another way of what Jimmy Chin says: like, be re be always ready for any everything, so you never have to train for anything. So it's uh -huh. like if he, if Conrad Anker calls him and is like, "Hey, I got a spot opened up on this expedition to Queen Maudland or wherever," you know, this harsh environment, you know, alpine, dangerous, sketchy, um, then assuming he doesn't have a conflict he can just say sure i can do that and he doesn't have to think oh crap i'm not physically prepared um and that combination is pretty fascinating too of somebody who's 
both, you know, has skied down from the top of Everest, so is a, an accomplished alpinist plus a creator. So having to function in wind, you know, blizzard force winds, if anyone's seen the documentary Merrow, and if you haven't, check it out, um, but yet still be a creator in those environments. And that really rolls us back to what we talked about at the beginning of that kind of renaissance man that your dad is, that you are um, of being well-rounded. Do you think that too often kids get taught that I can only be this or that? So in your case, well, I could be a writer or I could be a teacher, but there's no way I could be both, right? Or, you know, pick an even or. So do you feel like those... We sometimes, um, you know, whether you're, you're looking at it through the lens of an educator or a parent, and again, either wittingly or unwittingly, or just the culture, we only give the kids our, this binary opposition of you can be this or that, and then we try to stick them in that path for too long, and it, and it kind of hampers them from being that renaissance man or woman as an adult. Yeah, I, I, I definitely see that that tendency, uh, you know, the, t- towards the the tracking, uh, you know, especially uh, if you look at, uh, you know, some sometimes you see, you know, with the tiger mom approach, uh, you know, we're 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 trying to uh, uh, to to narrow in on one specific thing, and I think the think think that we've we've come back from demonizing the jack of all trades, master of none, uh, but but there is this kind of you know you know that for a while anyway there was this sense that we are the age of specialization you want to find your niche you want to specialize um i do think we're we're, we're kind of seeing seeing the pendulum swing away from that a little bit uh thank goodness because i don't i just don't think that's uh i i think that often uh the, the best what was the book that that argued this not long ago basically looked range at by david range, range. Yeah. epstein yes yeah. thank you but basically showed how the best often are able to, you know, they have these, these other skills in their toolkit. The, the network effect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's what I often explain to, to, to baseball parents is, is like, listen, Hey, uh, baseball does not itself build agility and speed the way that basketball or soccer will. Uh, those, those sports, you put your kid in them and they build uh, agility. Uh, baseball doesn't do that. And yet agility and speed in these, in these traits are killer in baseball. So that's why you need a little range. And I think that's often the case. Um, but I, the, the thing to get back to your question, the thing that I, I see more often than not being the, the biggest issue with how we kind of raise our, 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 our kids uh, to become adults and to enter the, the workforce is that it's too it's 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 not rooted in virtue or value or 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 a sense of purpose uh, it's not rooted in uh, in anything except for a metric uh, so hey you're good at this why don't you do this you can be successful here hey, oh, oh you like oh why don't you go this route so you know, over and over again, I see these kids that have no idea what they're interested in, uh, that they're just kind of going uh, passionless, passion, passionless as they go along this route. Um, and and it, if I had a solution for that, it would it would be you know, passionate parents who, you know, a culture of learning growing up, but also just exposure to to a lot of different experiences. You, you know, you, you probably aren't developing a, a passion that, that or, or, or an interest in, a, in, a, in many fields 
uh, on your couch watching YouTube videos. Um, but you know, when you travel, you see this, you're exposed to these different things. When you talk to different adults, you're put in these situations, uh, you know, maybe you hold different jobs, you know, for example, in college, I, I would spend every summer, uh, I worked for my uncle's uh, contracting company in Florida, you know, construction, and you just get these, this, this, you know, a broader, richer worldview, you know, I, it, while I did that, I, 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 uh, you know, the guy I worked with every day, he was a Cuban, you know, his family, they were political refugees. I think the broader, rich, you know, broader and richer you can make experiences, uh, the experience of, of your kids, the more likely that it is that, that they'll find uh, work that fills them with some purpose. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, in the athletes you've, you've worked with over the years, have you seen any great renaissance men and women who kind of have hobbies that initially you think, well, that's kind of unusual. Um, but yet it kind of like Shane was alluding to that network effect or lateralized into their sport or into their, their value system that then informed how they, how they progressed through their sporting career. Well, it's such an important topic because on the one hand, you, you know, to be world-class at anything, you need to, you know, be, you don't have this laser beam focus on what you most want, but um, that conversation, this conversation is coming up more and more in terms of, you know, how do I expand my horizons or, you know, how do I get my mind off of my craft and uh, how do I be, become a more well-rounded person? And, and I really like what Shane's saying as well. It's, it's not just productivity for productivity uh, uh, sake, you know, like we don't want to all just, you know, uh, uh, be these zombies that, you know, just tend to produce a lot. Uh, what's the point? It, uh, to me, the point is being vitally involved in life and, uh, and doing the things that, that you value most and, uh, and making the world a better place. And so, you know, am I good at this? Is it meaningful to me? Um, you know, those kind of questions, I don't think we stop and, and, and ask ourselves enough. Um, you know, is this fun? Um, Whereas a lot of times it's just keeping up with the Joneses, like Shane said, you know, like, well, I just got to get good grades to get in this school and then this and then this and then this. And it, you're just on this productivity track that's not really doesn't do as much. So a lot of the athletes that I'm working with, they they like to uh, flex their talents in different ways. And that frees them up to even do better at what they do best. So uh, it's a true win win. And, you know, we might not always be as balanced as we can be, but we can be more integrated, I think. And again, maybe Shane, that comes back to the kind of parental modeling you mentioned, because obviously we know the pitfalls of um, in quote sports parenting, you know, that Chris Bell's documentary Trophy Kids highlighted and we all see every day where if you don't get asked the question, oh, so what kid, you know, what sports are the kids involved in? It's like, then we give them the answer of, well, take them out hiking and, you know, we do this and that, we play basketball with them or kick a ball around or whatever but they're not actually in formalized sports. And, you know, my oldest is about to turn 15. People are horrified at that. And it's like, well, look, A, I have evidence that I may not have played D1, but I was a two-sport college athlete and I didn't start the one until late or expect to play the other in college, which is probably why I sat on the bench. But, um, you know, in terms of this, it isn't just a debate between range versus specialization or being a jack of all trades, master of none versus an expert in one thing and nothing else, right? It's it's partly like Jim said, living a rich life. And it, it, as parents, we have to be the adult in the room on that too. We can't just abdicate or think that if we're pushing our kids into X, Y, and Z because we think that it's going to impress our friends and neighbors that, oh, she does dance at this time of year and art classes at this. And 
the, all these formalized things um, that what, what I recently saw the spectator called the Zoom classes, you know, the upwardly mobile middle class have the option to do that. If we don't do those things, then we're one, setting ourselves up for social failure as adults amongst our peer network. And then two, we're doing our kids a disservice if they're not in four different sports and three other activities. So do you think that it partly comes back to, to modeling? Yeah, without with, with a, and and I I I think a lot of the issues we're seeing are kind of generation after generation now, where we've kind of gone deeper and deeper into this hyper individual environment. Um, there, we're losing the sense that that you play the position where the team needs you, not where not necessarily where the scholarship awaits or where, where you want to, uh, you know, it's uh, the, the name on the front is, is not as important as the name on the back. So we're, we're losing a little bit of that. And I think, you know, like you said, modeling uh, the, I, I think it was Colin Cowherd. I heard say saying one time uh, that uh, talking about this, this sports spe- specialization issue and the, you know, the amount of money we spend, where if you would have just put that money aside, you could have paid for college, but in chasing college scholarship, you've paid for all these, these, these you know, individual coaches and everything. Um, it is that we, we, as parents, we have an almost a hundred percent chance to endear deep values uh, and create good people. Uh, potentially great people. Uh, you know, that is not easy to do, but uh, it's not a huge mystery how to do it. Uh, you know, read uh, and you'll find a lot of a lot of ideas. Uh, but we tend to be swept away by keeping up with the Joneses. What are the Joneses doing? Uh, pursuing, you know, all these kind of arbitrary metrics that we've decided we wanted to chase. Uh, but not rooting that in, in, in any deeper values. Uh, so that, that I think is kind of at, at the crux of this, is this, this move to hyper-individualization of society uh, and, and, and this, this pursuit of everything just because you want it versus, uh, or, or you should want it versus is having a, a real sense of, of what's important, of what, the, what, what is the life well-lived, right? If we all... Uh, answered that for ourselves, asked ourselves that, answered that for ourselves, and then thought about, well, how do I raise a, a, a young adult who will be able to go out on their own uh, and, 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 and live the life well-lived for themselves, find their own telos, find their own, you know, walk the path towards self-actualization for themselves. Um, that, that needs to be brought back to the forefront of parenting. Um, I know some of the the issues we've explored, you know, you talk about in your book um, from both a parent parent's perspective, a society or cultural perspective, and then again, an educator's expect, perspective. And, and some teachers might pick up the book, read the, the front and back cover and think, oh, you're just this is just someone taking pot shots at his colleagues or at his profession. But knowing you as I do, I know that that is firmly not the case. What would you say a couple of easy wins are for any educators listening um, in terms of everything we've talked to and helping to equip the next generation to live the good life? The easiest win is to get the phone out of your, the classroom and out of, out of the school. I think that that's just essential. Uh, you know, it, it's presence, it's availability, 
discourages depth of, of thought. You know, it, it, it promotes distraction. It discourages connection amongst the students. Uh, it it dis discourages the sort of uh, a, a creative and, and, and inspiring environment that you would want, all right, that, that, that has people engaged. So that would be the easiest. Uh, I don't see a lot of other really, you know, controlling the environment is the easy thing. And, and, and that is the obvious thing that I think most school districts would, uh, should be more open to. Um, other, other things, uh, you know, more movement uh, in, in your class uh, would, would be, uh, I, I think to, to sit these kids down, you know, bell after bell, uh, hour after hour, uh, they're just, if, if you just start to do, I have teachers uh, I've talked to and my wife has gotten in this too, where they do, they do uh, little planking challenges in the middle of class and things like that to break things up. And that's been really, uh, really helpful and gets the kids excited. Um, also, CrossFit is, uh, CrossFit's got plenty of issues with it. And, you know, my, my opinion, as far as just the, the programming and the injuries that, that can be associated and if, if you're not ready, but it's brilliant uh, in its ability, uh, in, in the way it's, it, it's, uh, it can create culture. And I think that applying that same sort of model to your classroom or to your team or whatever it is, where there are, you know, where you're naming, you're ritualizing things you do, you're, you, you, maybe you're, you're assigning points to thing. Competition is not a dirty word. It's, it's really, uh, it's, it's really essential, uh, in some form or fashion. It's, it's part of the human condition, uh, that we like to compete, uh, you know, typically when people don't want to compete, it's because they think that they're bad at something or they fear failure. But uh, creating creating an environment then where where they are being encouraged, where you're you know you're praising the effort, you're 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 seeing those things, and they are encouraged just to see improvements. Um, and and, and uh, I think those are are, are potential wins um, for sure. And then of course the the the. The wins as a teacher will follow when you become really interested about things. When you're passionate, your 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 students are going to be more passionate. They're going to be more likely to come to life if they they see you up there, you know, just doing a job, getting through it. Then they're not going to be very charged up either. So, if, if as a teacher, if you can really start to love learning again, start to love reading again, uh, that's going to be contagious. Love that. Um, Jim, before I close this out here, do you have maybe one final question for Shane? Well, I love that last part about, you know, your enthusiasm becomes their enthusiasm as, as a teacher or a leader. So just that's like so calm, important. Just like calm is contagious under pressure, right, as a coach or a teacher or a parent. That's right. And that's what's great about the leadership, teamwork, culture. Everything is so interconnected. Um, what's next for you? I would love to hear. You have so many great things. And not to add one more thing, but... Um, you know, and to, to your plate, but, um, you, 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 you do live a rich life and, and, um, tell us what, what, what gets you excited thinking about what could be next. In the short term, I'm very excited, uh, to be working right now on a proposal. I've been, I've been pushing to my district about, you know, it's a proposal. Uh, I framed it as a proposal for the, uh, health, well-being, and character of students. So I've kind of a package deal. I've put to the district and I have some meetings later this month. So I'm hoping to, to get, you know, uh, what, what I see as low hanging fruit uh, policy changes and, and initiatives in place. Um, I, 
I mentioned this this uh, the order of arete uh, this this men's group that uh, you know we have readings we have rites of passage we're building towards I'm really excited to see where that goes I wanted to to start to really dig into my own community after spending the last four years uh, you know taking every every uh, spare moment to to write uh, but uh, as as Phil uh, told me would happen I I also uh have, have <laughs> a, a second book uh that, that i keep uh skeletoning uh in, in every spare moment and uh I'm, I'm really excited uh to to give myself a little longer uh get more ideas out there uh but uh i i i'm excited to jump into that maybe maybe this time next year or maybe a little earlier uh, it's amazing that sense of self-efficacy um that given, you know, that long form project gives you, right, once you've done it, because, you know, having been there with you at the beginning, where it was like, all right, the first order of business is 10 chapter titles. And then it's five to seven main talking points per chapter. And then it's five to seven main bullet points under each one. And to see you go from that point to to this to the book um, setting the bar, which is truly excellent, and, and such a great achievement. And the fact that like Jim and I, you did it while having other jobs <laughs> and other responsibilities of the family is just kudos to you. But uh, to see that confidence grow in you and, and the knowledge that you can make an impact one one book at a time um, is truly special. So yeah, again, kudos to you for, for seeing the process through to those conversations we had several years ago to, to where you are now. And, um, you know, just in hearing from... Uh, from a, a former friend and colleague, Paul Arnold, recently that wrote back and said, "Oh, set, yeah, setting the bars on on the top of my reading list, you know, that kind of thing." That that's like, man, that's that's so gratifying because I know all the blood, sweat, and tears that you put into it and what it takes. So, and Jim and I, goodness knows, have got books planned out for <laughs> infinitely into the future too. So good for you. So outside of people um, reading, setting the bar in whatever format, um, whether it's actually reading or listening to it on Audible, where can people find out more about you? you and uh keep up with you and your work the best place is probably uh my website uh trottershane.com uh t-r-o-t-t-e-r-s-h-a-n-e.com uh and that is uh there's an email form that'll go right to 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 my personal email and everything there um i'm also on twitter um but very very infrequently of late so i don't know if the email I, i check daily I love that. Well, thank you so much for spending a couple of hours with us and uh, taking time away from from school and and, and your kids and family as well. So thank them for uh, sparing you for a little bit. And yeah, really just appreciate you being part of Champion Conversations and and, and for being the great friend and person that you are. Well, thank you. I I, uh, I owe you a ton, Phil, for, uh, for, for being such a great mentor uh, to me over the years. And uh, Dr. Aframau, it's phenomenal to get to speak to you as well. Thanks so much. And we encourage all our listeners to uh, do a challenge of a cold plunge after listening to uh, today's episode. Yeah. And to start setting out some rituals for themselves and then tying those back to, to core principles and values and goals as well. Because I think uh, when things are too randomized, you've got to allow for a little, <laughs> little craziness in, in all of our lives. But um, but we also need some order as well. So I think you've uh, you've set out some great you know, rituals, rites of passage, um, and just a values 
based approach to, to as you say, Lee, what does it mean to you to live a, a good life? And ha- what changes are you going to make? What are you willing to sacrifice? What do you need to turn up or down, as Jim said, to, to get to where you want to go? And then, like you did with this book, four years of getting up at 4am, it's going to take something, um, particularly as most of us, uh, unfortunately, can't just write books for a living or whatever our thing is. But um, even if you're not always able to make the main thing, the main thing, just keep it in mind um, who you are, you know, what, what you and your family stand for and your community and, and how you're, you're able to serve others is, is a great blueprint. So thank you for sharing that with us today, Shane. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.